All right, if you have a copy of the confession this morning, let's go once again to chapter number 26, and then also in your Bibles, if you would turn to the 11th chapter of Acts. So Acts chapter 11, and then also the confession, chapter 26, paragraph 2, is where we'll be this morning. So chapter 26, as we have learned, is dealing with the church, and it's dealing with uh, nearly every aspect of the church. Uh, We made mention that the first few paragraphs of chapter 26 primarily deal uh, with what's referred to as the universal church. Uh, It makes mention of not only the invisible church, but the visible church, but also combines these thoughts into reminding us about how the church is demonstrated or how the church is actually seen in the world. And you'll notice with me paragraph two, we'll just read through this paragraph. It says, all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, everting the foundation or unholiness of conversation are and may be called visible saints. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So the universal, the universal church, or its, uh, it is its spectrum. Uh, we understand that it is witnessed or is evidenced through the people of God. So as we look across the world and we look uh, look across and consider the Christians from every corner of the earth, we are in fact seeing what we would call the visible church. Now we understand that and we learned even from paragraph one that this invisible church or this the church of all of God's elect from the beginning of time, uh, that church is not always visible. We can't see every believer, every saint that's ever lived. But at any given time in history, the church is visible and his saints are visible. We see them throughout every nation and we see them throughout all countries in the world. But we also see that these visible people of God are most often witnessed by us through local congregations or local bodies of Christ. And so we know that the people of God are people who have truly had a work of the Spirit done in them. There has been a very real conversion. Uh, It has not just been a profession of faith. It has not just been, I'm saying I'm a child of God. There's actually been a work of grace done in that person's heart. Their soul has, in fact, been converted. Uh, They are saved. They are of the people of God. It is a work of the Spirit and the truth of God's grace. Now, we don't see that work when it happens. We don't visibly see it outwardly. We don't see a soul being converted. We see the evidence of it. We see the results of it. Uh, We don't uh, suddenly watch somebody and we see this work in the Spirit and they go through uh, all sorts of weird convulsions and all sorts of things. The work of the Spirit takes place and there is a profession that they make that God has done a saving work in their soul. So the work of the Spirit, it's invisible. But the evidence of the work of the Spirit, that is what we call fruit. That is the evidence of conversion. And so when we talk about the church, remember, we're talking about the actual body of Christ. The church does not make up anybody who claims to be part of the church, but it's only made up of those who are actually part of the body of Christ. 
this true internal work of the Spirit always results in genuine faith. Genuine faith always produces fruit. Even Jesus himself said, you will know who are my own. You'll know them by their fruits. On the flip side, he said, you'll also know the false prophets by the fruit. You'll see the corruptness of who they are. Uh, they are. They will bring forth what they actually are. So we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a God-given grace. It is a testimony of our faith. And it visibly corresponds with what we have professed. In other words, our actions should match our profession. If we profess to be a child of God, then our actions should illustrate what, a, what the people of God should actually be. In the end part of that paragraph, and we're going to kind of weave this into the text we're going to look at this morning, but you'll notice that, again, it says all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation are and may be called. Notice the confession writer said they can be and they may be called visible saints. Those who do not destroy their own profession by errors, which would be heresy, would be those things which destroy the foundation of who Christ is. Those people may be called the visible saints. And the confession writers were very careful in how they worded this. And of such, of these visible saints all particular congregations to be constituted. In other words, every congregation of the true church would be made up or should be made up of people who have truly had this internal work of grace done in their heart. There really is no such thing as an unconverted church member. There's no such thing as an unconverted church. The church is made up of converted people. Now, we might have at any given time, and we, we pray to God that this does happen, that any time our church gathers, that we might have somebody unconverted who is hearing the gospel. And although they're not part of the visible church as of yet, they're not part of any local congregation, they are under the preaching of the word with the prayer and the hope that they will receive this internal work of grace, they will actually be converted, and they will become part of a local body of believers. So we welcome those who are in an unconverted state. We want the unconverted to come in. We don't want to put this gate around this church, this building like a compound and say the the unconverted, the unsaved are not welcome here. No, we, we want the front doors wide open. But we've got to be careful about who we call the church. The church is those who are actually in the body of Christ. Those who have actually had this internal work of grace. Now, in Acts chapter number 11, we have an account of one of the many accounts of where we, we, are, we are given kind of a glimpse of not all of the operations of a church, not all of what goes on in the body of Christ, but we're given a, a, a picture of what the church of God, the real people of God, the visible church looks like. And if you look with me at Acts chapter 11, verse number, beginning in verse number 19, It says, now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. 
And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord." Then departed Barnabas to Tarshish for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the spirit that there should be a great dart throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and of Saul. You'll notice in verse 23, and I love this expression with regard to Barnabas. It says, when he, Barnabas, came, had seen the grace of God, he was glad. What Barnabas was seeing was he was seeing the true evidence and the true marks of people who had been touched by the grace of God. He was seeing the outward manifestation of that internal work of grace. We see the outward effects of grace. We see the grace of God. The church sees the grace of God. The evidence of a true converted soul is plainly seen by that demonstration of the grace of God in the life of that individual. When you see God's grace at work, it is unmistakable. When you see God's grace being poured out into a person or being poured out upon a group of people, it's an unmistakable sight. Sometimes there are no words for it. Sometimes it can't be explained. But there is an unmistakable work of grace that's going on. Barnabas saw that. And you'll notice that his response to that work was gladness. Now, it's amazing, but really in our churches today, sometimes we get the idea, and some churches we fall prey to being a little bit envious that the grace of God appears to be working in some other place in a grander fashion than where it's working in our place. But do you realize anywhere the grace of God is at work, it ought to make us glad. If the grace of God is working across the street in a church that we don't belong to, but the grace of God is working, we ought to be glad about that. We ought to be glad that as the gospel is going forth, souls are being converted, people are being saved, they're being added to good, sound churches. Even if it's not our own, we ought to be glad that it's happening. Because when you see God's grace, those who've been touched by God's grace cannot help but be glad that God's grace has not stopped working. And it continues to go forth. And Barnabas saw this happening. And I love the expressions that are used here. He says not only was he glad, but he exhorted them all, those who had seen this grace, that with purpose of heart, 
they would cleave unto the Lord. Folks, that's the very picture of what the church should be, is that the church should desire to cleave with the entire heart, to cleave unto the Lord. Above everything else, we ought to want Christ more than anything. We ought to want God more than anything. A church that has seen the grace of God ought to want to have and understand and grow in the things of God's grace. These individuals, as Barnabas saw this happening, and it's interesting that a testimony that's given about him, I've always, I've always found this remarkable that it says about Barnabas, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. So when we see a local church, when we see a church like ours, we see the grace of God at work. This is exactly what the confession writers were talking about. This, 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 a church is a church that is the grace of God working. You see it working. You see it active. You see it responding. And you notice that it's in verse 26 where we see that it was the church who saw the grace of God. That's who was first called Christians. Notice that the designation, the title of Christians was associated with the church. It was associated with a group of believers who were cleaving to the Lord, those who had seen the grace of God, those who were, uh, were, 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 were the grace of God at work. That's who the Bible says was called Christians first. Now, I know Christians today, that word Christian has taken on a whole new meaning. And it doesn't quite mean what you think it means. Uh, if anybody has, there are people today that as long as they acknowledge God, they call themselves a Christian. If they have any, any idea, any belief at all, I, I believe there's a God, they say, well, I'm a Christian. And you say, why? Because I believe in God. That doesn't make you a Christian at all. The devils believe. They believe there's a God, but that doesn't mean that they are in the family of God. Why? Because there has to be an acknowledgement. There has to, be, it has to be that work of grace that is done. The soul has to be converted in order to even see and understand these truths. But the church saw the grace of God, and they were called Christians there. In verses 27 and 28, we see, In those days came prophets from Jerusalem and Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great darth or a famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren. This visible local church here saw the need of other believers and were determined as their ability allowed them to send relief to other brethren to help out the cause, to help those who were in trouble, those who were in desperate situations. This is a visible church we can see. We can see this church acting. We can see this church understands the grace of God. It understands that, that not only is the, the church seeing the grace of God, it shows the grace of God in its giving. This is how it works. This is a, this is a, a snapshot of a very healthy church. A church that is the grace of God at work. A church that it can be called true Christians. A church that sees the grace of God being done in other believers. And a church that shows the grace of God by giving. By giving to those who are in need. 
And when we think about this church and we think about what they were doing, notice that it's very clear that it says that it was, it is by the Spirit all these things are happening. It is happening because they are giving through and by the Spirit. When the work of the Spirit is being done in our lives, it is going to manifest itself with fruit. It's going to demonstrate that which has in fact taken place, that which is is real. This paragraph that we're looking at this morning really is making two main points. And these main points have to do with the reality of what the church is actually doing and what's happening there. And when we talk about the local church, we are talking about the visible church, right? We're talking about that which you can see. But a local church, first of all, professes the name of Christ and believes the true gospel. Okay? The local church, that is the true church, professes the name of Christ and believes the true gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 give us a little bit of insight into this. And of course, the Apostle Paul, uh, many times when he would pen his epistles and pen these letters, he would begin many of his letters this same way. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, as he wrote to the church at Rome, he says, "...to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That church at Rome, its profession had gone even beyond its borders. Paul writes and he says, beloved of God. He, he called them by what they were. Those who had truly made this profession of Christ, those who truly believed the gospel. And he says, I thank God through Christ for you. I thank him that your faith, this common faith that we share, is spoken of throughout all the world. It is a joy to be able to know that there are other churches that are standing for the true gospel and still professing Christ. That no matter how dark the days get, no matter how much it seems like the world is apostatizing away from the things of God, please remember that there will always be a visible church in this, in this age. The church will never fully go away. No matter how many buildings they destroy, no matter how many people sadly are martyred for their faith, the church will always have a presence no matter what happens. And the, real, the reality is, is even when Paul wrote to that church in Rome, he could not speak for certain that that church would be standing forever. But he could say that your faith is spoken of, this faith that I believe, our common faith. He wrote to the church at Corinth very similar words. If you turn over just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Again, it's almost always during his opening introductions or the beginning of his letters that he makes mention of these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, as was his custom and was often necessary to identify who he was, you see first in verse 1, he says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. In verse 2, he says, unto the church of God, 
which is at Corinth. So this shows us that he's writing specifically to a visible church, the church at Corinth. That letter was addressed to them. That church at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus or by Jesus Christ. He thanks God for that church. He knows that these are the churches that are making up even at that time, the visible churches of God. And then let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Again, first chapter, opening thoughts. Again, we see he's writing to specific visible churches. He's not writing to just the church in general. He's writing to these churches. Again, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you, into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed." The church at Galatia was under a severe, really a severe attack. There was what was, could be referred to as another gospel that was penetrating the churches. And so when Paul wrote that letter of instruction, he was writing specifically to a problem that those churches in Galatia were experiencing. And it was having an impact. He uses terminology such as, I, I am troubled by the fact and he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. This gospel, this false gospel that was weaving its way into these churches, Paul was deeply concerned about that. And he was calling them back and he said, there is no other gospel. And if someone comes preaching another gospel than the gospel we preached unto you, let that man be accursed. Folks, I, can, I can, can't count on two hands how many churches I know of personally that have forsaken the true gospel and have gone after another gospel. Churches that, if I, would, if I would name them at one time, you could go back in their history and you would say that church actually used to stand on the same gospel that we stand on. And they no longer stand there. They have succumbed to the culture. I said this last week. This is the most dangerous thing that's happening right now is the churches in America are succumbing to the culture. They are adapting and it's happening right before our eyes. The gospel is being forsaken for some level of what they think the church ought to be about and they're forsaking the main thing that should never be forsaken. That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Churches are becoming anything but the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, the church should be involved in a lot of things. It should be a very benevolent group. But if you forsake this, you forsake the true gospel, you cease to be what God determined a church should be. These local churches, they are made up of people who profess the name of Christ and believe the true gospel. Secondly, they give evidence that their faith is genuine by living obedient, godly lives, although they are not perfect. We realize, folks, that obedience by the Christian does not mean that we're going to be perfect. But this idea that says all you have to do is just get your salvation settled, and then the rest of it is just cake. It's easy. Don't worry about it. No, there should be obedience that should follow that. The obedience of the, the Lord being the Lord of our life. It shouldn't just be something they just get this conversion out of the way and then that's all God's concerned about. No, the church is made up of not only people who have, who have professed the name of Christ, they believe the true gospel, but they actually give evidence that something has taken place. If you go to the book of James, chapter 2, we see an illustration of how this should look. And again, this is, this is familiar to many of us. James chapter 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Drop down to verse 26. For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James very clearly says that if, if, if the body, the physical body doesn't have the spirit, it's dead. And the same way, if you have a faith that has no works, then your faith is dead. Faith is going to result in obedience. Although we know it's not going to be perfect. Thirdly, we also know that not only do we profess the name, we give evidence of the faith, but we hold to the doctrines of the faith. And we don't promote heresy. We hold, certainly, to our doctrine. The reason that we study the confession every Sunday morning is so that we are holding fast to the doctrine of the Bible. That's exclusively why we're doing it. Again, the confession does not supersede the scriptures. I have to say this every time. The, the scriptures are the final authority. Where there's a disagreement between the scriptures and the confession, we always take the scriptures declaration on that. But what the confession does is it tells a person exactly what the church they are attending or a member of, what that church believes. We've had questions asked about, do we have pamphlets or brochures about our church? It is always an interesting conversation because you know what we typically hand them is a confession of faith. It's, it's not your typical brochure that is in flashy and glossy paper and shows all these things happening, but it declares this is what the church believes. And this is why we stand on those things. There is another movement as the church succumbs to the culture 
There's another movement that is now stating doctrine really isn't that important. Really what the church needs to be about exclusively is just loving people. Well, can I tell you that we will not love people as Christ loves people unless we love them through the doctrine which we stand on. Our doctrine, if it's actually held to, will actually lead to us being loving people. It's not going to take away from it. Doctrine actually leads to application. The visible church should be doctrinally sound. When Paul was writing to Timothy, these are familiar passages too. 1 Timothy chapter 1. When he began his first letter to Timothy, notice the first thing he didn't talk about was how to organize and structure your church. He warned him about false doctrine before he did anything else. The first words that he said to Timothy, look at this with me, 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He goes on and tells Timothy how he, is, he thanks Christ who enabled him and put him into the ministry. A true church holds fast on the doctrine in which it believes. In the second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he revisits it a second time. And he warns about a day that's coming. And again, we see it happening all around us. Verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. The time will come when what will happen? When they will not endure sound doctrine. And instead of sound doctrine, they'll have itching ears that says, what does that mean to have itching ears? It means give us what we want to hear. Of those churches that I've told you that have compromised the true gospel, Most of those churches now are itching ears churches. 
It's a direct connection. They, they gave up the doctrine and they have become churches that now only give us what we want to hear. And they're often marked by saying, give me something to give me a good week or to give me a good day. Give me satisfaction now. Give me gratification now. Make it what I want it to be. And it all started because they would not endure sound doctrine. So these true churches profess and believe the true gospel. They give evidence of their faith by living obedient, godly lives. They hold to the doctrines of the scriptures. And fourth, they are not living in open sin. They are not living in open sin. Matthew 18 gives us what to do in a reality of a church when we have that kind of a situation. And we understand that it's given to us for not only the protection of the offender, but also protection of the church and to do it according to Scripture. But Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That's, that's what we always want. That's what we always want. An offense happens. Another goes to that brother. He hears you. There's repentance. There's confession. There's a reconciled, restored relationship there, right? But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, there should not be open sin running rampant inside of a church. First, First Corinthians chapter 5, we get a, a very disturbing account of sin that was going on, and nobody was doing anything about it. So it should not be a church, a visible church, should not have people living in open sin. So these people are called visible saints. Why? Because the fruit is visible here on earth. All of the local churches on earth at any point in time can collectively be called the universal visible church. So when we looked at Acts chapter 11, when we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 1, this is a reference to the universal visible church. It's universal because these verses speak of the church in the singular. It's visible because it can be persecuted. Those churches are visible. They are active bodies. The universal church in general, the invisible universal church can't be persecuted, but the local church can. The local church is, is actually evidenced and witnessed. So the relation of the universal visible church to local churches is that only visible saints can and should be members of local churches. You know the first question when someone is considering church membership should be? <laughs> About their profession of faith. It, it, there should be an interaction and a discussion about, are they truly in the faith? Are you, are, have you truly repented of your sins? Have you truly believed in Christ alone? Are you trusting in Him and Him only? Before we ever have conversations about, should a person be welcomed into a membership of a church? There is no such thing as an unregenerate church membership. It's, it's regenerated. It's converted. It's, it's true believers. But sadly... 
We have members of churches all across this nation who have never even been converted who are on church membership rolls. While the universal church, the visible church, even our church, is not perfect, we know, we know we're not perfect. We know we're far from it. But there is a desire to live obedient, godly lives. So if we're truly Christian, if we're truly believers, we truly confess Christ's name, and we obey Him, we desire to obey Him. We want to do His will. Any profession of faith, no matter how exciting it might be, is always contradicted if heresy or a path of ungodliness rises up. Professions of faith are just that. I can tell you a lot of things. I can say I'm this, you can say you're that, but it's only the evidence that demonstrates I truly am a child of God. That I'm truly part of the church. That I'm truly walking and desire to walk with God. As we move on in these paragraphs, the confession writers were very, very aware. And verse 3, and I want you to read ahead for next week, they make reference of even the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. You could hardly get away with that in our society today. The confession writers were aware that this would happen. That it would become so intermixed and it would degenerate so far that it wouldn't be, not only would it not be called a synagogue of Christ or a church of Christ, it would be called a synagogue of Satan. So pretty stirring warning that we'll look into next week. All right, let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the church. And Father, we could not possibly, even in our study today, exhaust everything that we needed to look at and needed to speak and teach on today. But Father, how I pray that you would help us as we consider these truths and we consider the church. Lord, that we would never take it lightly. We would always view the church not as ours, but that which Christ died for. And Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, that's what we're thinking of, and we're thinking of Christ as the one who has the preeminence, he who is the head of the church, he who willfully and voluntarily gave up his life for his people, and gloriously on that third day rose triumphantly from the grave. Lord, may we continue in the things which you've instructed and taught us in your word. May we never be tempted to compromise, tempted to succumb to the culture, no matter how intense the pressure gets, may we never even consider the thought of compromising the true gospel. Lord, we do love you today and we thank you. Lord, we pray you'd continue to add unto this church as you see fit. Pray that lives would continue to be touched, souls would continue to be saved, and that we would rejoice in it all. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, well, we'll begin our normal time this morning at 11.15, all right, 11.15.